Hello, listeners. You are tuning in to another episode of The Partial Historians. On my right-hand side is the lovely... Dr. G. Hello, everybody. (laughs) And I, of course, am Dr. Rad. We are doing a special episode, probably the most special episode I think we've ever done, Dr. G. I, I think this tops our level of special right now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, once again, we are returning to Augustus. Uh, who some of you may already know. In fact, I hope that you all know by now because we've talked about him a bit. Uh, but there is going to be a, a twist this episode, and that is that we have a, a true expert in the field in the house today. But before we get started, I thought we should probably give a bit of a rundown about who Augustus is. So, Dr. G, you're a fangirl. Why don't you kick it off? Who is Augustus? I mean, it's a big philosophical question, isn't it? <laughs> um, is he the man he makes himself out to be? I would say he... definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> or is he the man that historians say he might be? Yeah. Um, the salient points, I think, about Augustus is that he is the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. And everything about his adult life and career really stems from what seems to be an innocuous fact of relationship. Mm. Um, because that sort of means a substantial relationship connection. It's just a sort of extended family connection. Mm. Nobody's expecting much of the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. But then lucky for him, Caesar gets the old stabby stabby yeah. uh, and, and actually names him as his heir and adopts him in his will. Yes, and this seems to be a surprise to just about everybody. Um, (laughs) Himself included, yeah. Including including Octavian, as he is known in his youth. Um, So from that moment onwards, his whole life changes, and there is a series of sort of clear decisions that he makes that lead to some pretty profound consequences, which maybe he wasn't expecting. Um, But his decision to march towards Rome Uh, rather than go into hiding at the behest of all of his relatives um, (laughs) after news of Caesar's assassination reaches him is the turning point that changes everything. And he does all of this at a pretty young age. He's 19. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To the kids listening out there, anything is possible. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) As long as you don't care by playing about the rules or anyone else's feelings. Yeah, Yeah. so (laughs) the important rule, the important lesson that Augustus leaves us is ignore your parents, ignore your relatives. (laughs) And follow your own path. <laughs> and you too. Believe that you are invincible <laughs> and it shall be so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he basically sets off on a, um, a pretty turbulent career path at first where he has to negotiate some, you know, the, the, the very... <laughs> the very twisted paths of Roman politics. Uh, other people who fancy themselves to be Caesar's heir, such as Mark Antony. Mark Antony. Indeed. Uh, but eventually, after a series of uh, civil wars, essentially, he ends up being... Brutal killings, yeah, I should say. <laughs> that too. He ends up being the last man standing, and he ushers in a new phase for Rome. Now, I'm going to be very careful about how I define that phase because of our esteemed guest here who's uh, spent a lot of time talking about what exactly this phase is and how we should define it. Um, But in the popular imagination, he essentially establishes a system that uh, begins the, the empire with a capital E. Yeah, so the legacy that he leaves seems to be one of direct... Uh, hereditary rule to a certain extent, although this does not get formalised legally until we get to Vespasian. Um, so there are lots of questions that we can ask about what what system, I put that in little quotation marks because there's some questions about that, that he sets up and really whether he even meant to set up anything at all beyond a family legacy. Very true. So I feel like it's time to introduce our guest, Dr. G. Would you like to do the honours? Mm, well, we have with us today Emeritus Professor Edwin Judge, and we're really excited to have him here. Um, he's recently published a collection of his essays relating to his thoughts on Augustus that spread the whole length of his career. And uh, I believe you've been working in ancient history since the 50s, which is I'm, I'm profoundly in respect and awe to be sitting across uh, from you today, Edwin Judge. Thank you for coming in. Glad to join you. You can finally get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Um, so your recent publication, this collection of essays, uh, released by the Cambridge Scholars Press, is entitled The Failure of Augustus. I love the title. <laughs> and I'm, 
as a like sort of a launching point, I'm really interested, first of all, in what intrigues you about Augustus. Well, it is this failure. I didn't know I was writing about a failure. I've been writing about Augustus for 50 years. <laughs> and when I came to put the 26 chapters together, mm. all of which had been written ages ago, all of a sudden it dawned on my consciousness that um, there was one word that occurred in the text a number of times, and that was failed. That was never planned. I wasn't aware that it was there, and I now have to search to find where it is that I said that in these <laughs> studies. But at the point of putting them together, all of a sudden it dawned on me, that is the point. He is a failure. And this is a pretty interesting perspective to take because most people look at Augustus as you know, the ultimate princeps, the guy that everyone else was trying to measure up to. I mean, he's in charge for such a long time as well. He really gets a chance to leave his mark on Rome in more ways than one. So I'm intrigued to know what led you to this point of view, which I so heartily adopt about Augustus <laughs> myself. <laughs> well, everything that you say... And everything that everybody else says, mm. and they say right down to the present, um, is governed by what happens later. And the fundamental thing in all human studies, in our lives, for example, is not what happened later, but at the point when it's happening. Mm. What were you trying to do? And typically, it, things turn out differently. It's, yeah. it's the case for all of us all the time. <laughs> and... Uh, Nevertheless, if we're thinking in terms of ultimate authenticity, it's this intangible, non-existent, if you like, point of the present. The present isn't a period of time. It is the point between what has already happened and what may happen yet. And it's not a period of time. It's that kind of watershed. And yet that is the only point of reality. We know this in our lives at every point of the day. We immediately regret something we've just said, <laughs> that it was done, there are consequences, and so on. Life is like this. So one should always try to, when looking back at other people, looking back on yourself, for example, uh, one should always check again, well, was it supposed to be like this? Mm. Augustus has such a long time to... Uh, mop up any potential mistakes that he made, or as you say, unintended consequences. And he also has quite a significant propaganda machine <laughs> at his disposal. Do you think this has a lot to do with how people have tended to see him over time? No, uh, he he actually wrote extensive commentaries on himself, mm. as Julius Caesar had done mm. while he was in the thick of it. Yes, and these these largely are lost. In the case of Caesar's commentaries, we have them. Mm. So we know what Caesar was thinking at the time, year by year. Uh, but we don't know that for Augustus. So we have to reconstruct uh, what he must have been thinking from the endless secondary information we have about it. I've, in fact, known what his intentions were for 50 years. <laughs> uh, that hasn't changed. But my... My point in calling it a failure mm. uh, belongs to this year alone. It was only when this book was getting ready to go to the press I thought, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> but that, of course, is interpretative too. So what do you think 19-year-old Augustus's dream was after the death of Caesar? What was he intending to accomplish? We don't know what his dream was at the time. Uh, we do know how determined he was. Uh, the point you've mentioned he decided not to, to escape after the assassination of Caesar, but to go back to Rome mm. and face it. Even before he knew about the will, he made that decision. And his uh, mother and, and father-in-law both tried to persuade him not to go. He was with the troops getting ready for the Parthian expedition in Albania when the news of the assassination came. And they the message from his parents was, on no account, come back, stay there where you're safe. Anyway, you were right to stress. It was an epoch-making decision to go back. 
and there was a further stage in it. He was very cautious when he landed in Italy because he didn't know uh, what would be going on. You know, he's, he's several days or even weeks behind the events already. Uh, remember, this is not instant communication. We've got to be actual people come and tell you what happened. Yeah. And he very cagely approached... Uh, he was in, in military service in Albania, uh, and he approached the legions at Brindisi, other side of the Adriatic Sea, very cautiously. And I suspect, to his surprise, he hadn't heard of the will. I'm not sure when he heard of the will, but the, the soldiers had heard of it, and he must have heard of it by now, perhaps when he landed. In Italy, he heard of it from his parents, but the soldiers saluted him as Caesar. They called him Caesar. That was not his name. And that must have been a shock. I think as a 19-year-old, I try to imagine myself as Octavian in that moment. Well, he must have, he must have known by then that he was in the will and that there was a condition in the will. The condition in the will was that he accept the name Caesar. And in fact, that that involved um, a lawful adoption. You can't just take somebody's name and join their family. It has to be established by law, naturally by birth, of course. But um, in fact, um, the idea of a posthumous will was unheard of. The whole thing about death is that's final and you lose control. That's why people write wills, of course, to do what they can to regulate it. But he had no obligation to fall in with Caesar's suggestion. And Caesar had not told him, as you indicated. Uh, that's very significant. Caesar had reservations, for sure. Well, the natural expectation was there might be a, a son to his own marriage be born. That never happened. And oddly enough, it, it never happened with Augustus either. Those two great figures, Caesar and Augustus, both lacked a natural son and a very large dimension of the history revolves around who then gets control without a male heir. It does certainly lead to complications. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak more to the nature of the way that wills are set up and the nature of Roman adoption um, and why precisely this case is so unusual. And we talk about it being because it's a posthumous sort of adoption. But how, for our listeners, can you explain a little bit about how Roman adoption was supposed to work and what makes this case so unique? Well, it's supposed to work um, between two living people. The father, who lacks a natural heir, uh, meaning a male heir, to his estate, must adopt one in the interests of the ongoing permanent life of his family. The family was a sacred institution, and you were obligated, not just morally, but in terms of the sacral system of the Romans, the family had ongoing life which must be sustained, and it must be sustained by descent. And since the deaths of children and early children and so on in childbirth and so on was very common, it was always a bit chancy. But adoption was a fully lawful and proper and desired alternative if there was no male heir. You mm. would adopt one. And he would then take your name and so on. And Roman history, as you know, is full of people whose names get doubled up yeah. <laughs> with, um, with the, the one they were born with and then the one into which they've been adopted. And to be an adopted son is just as valid at law as being a natural son. So it is extraordinary that um, Caesar had not actually done it, presumably because, well, obviously he wanted to keep his options open. Mm -hmm. At the very least, that was what he was doing. Yeah, because there certainly seems to be a, a sense that he's leaving as much as he can a, a gap for a natural son to be born. But in the event that one is not, the provision for then Octavian comes into play. I think this really upsets Antony, amongst other people. Yes, well, Cicero, after it was all over, Cicero accused Antonius of uh, assuming that he was 
going to be adopted in the will. Mm. That's just a barb by Cicero, but there's some possible truth in it because um, Antony had been somewhat alienated from Julius Caesar in recent years before his assassination. Um, he became the consul with Julius Caesar, however, in the fateful year of 44. Um, and by that time, he had become reconciled to Caesar. And we know for certain from the detailed information we have that um, the long journey back from Gaul, uh, where Caesar was campaigning, not in Gaul now, but in Spain, had taken place with Caesar sharing the carriage with Antonius, his fellow consul. And they had several days together alone on the journey back to Rome. And we know for certain that Antonius already knew of the assassination plot, and he did not tell Caesar. Nevertheless, it's clear that Caesar had rebonded with Antonius. Mm. And indeed, I think I'm right in saying that at an earlier stage, one of Caesar's great opponents, Gaius Pompeius, Gaius Pompeius, was in the will, and in fact um, was his son-in-law because married he to Julia. was married to yeah. his daughter. Pompeius married to So after the death of Pompeius, it would be known that he had been in the will, presumably, and uh, the, the question would be on everyone's mind, well, I wonder who's in the will. And I think it's entirely plausible, actually, what Cicero alleges, that it's hardly implausible that Antonius would have expected to be in the world. Mm, yes, I think, I mean, when we're thinking about Cicero in particular, I'm always at a pains um, to suggest to people that for anything that Cicero says to have any consequence, for him to be the orator held up as he is, he has to be making mostly plausible arguments, even if only by a thread of plausibility. Otherwise, he loses his ability to persuade. Um, so in this case, um, as well, I, I tend to agree with you that, you know, there has to be something to it. But getting back to this concept of failure, are there any particular examples um, where Octavian slash Augustus um, is in a moment at, at that knife point of the present where you think he's failed to read the consequences of his actions or perhaps failed to foresee how it might unfold? No, I don't point to any particular things, except it is the lifelong problem mm. of his life. And you have to ask me, well, what was the failure? What, what, what was his aim? That's the thing. Uh -huh. uh, you can't be called a failure given the test we're allowing, that we should go to the point of time when it was happening. You can't be called a failure unless we know what you thought you were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And we do know that crystal clear because uh, Augustus himself uh, laid it out in the year 2 BC in the Forum of Augustus. And he said in an edict, uh, an edict is um, a very solemn legally enforceable direction to the Roman public. Any magistrate can tell the public what to do by edict, and it was not uncommon. It was part of a magistrate's duty. And Augustus, having created this new forum, and he lined it with um, the statues of previous leaders. And in the edict, he instructed the Roman people to choose for their future leaders by that standard, the standard represented by the statutes that he put up. Now, each of the statutes has uh, a clear, boldly displayed uh, epigraphic formula underneath it, apparently just summarizing that man's career. And it will say his principal magistracy, his triumph, one or two things like that. But it is not all formal. In each of the uh, inscriptions, 
there is a single unique thing about each person. And it's a little episode, extremely briefly stated, but it would have been something that the educated Roman public, and indeed the general public, would have known because there are things from the famous history of Rome on which the people were all fed. And so, apart from the formalities of the man, who's in his statue, there is this little uh, episode. Uh, I've invented a Latin phrase for it. It is an exemplum, an example, virtutus of enterprise. The Latin word virtus, V-I-R-T-U-S, our word virtue, means, in my opinion, enterprise. It's derived from the word for a man, via. And it means, therefore, masculinity, but masculinity uh, in a specific uh, framework of reference. That's why I offer enterprise as a translation for it. It's, it's an action which displays your leadership. And it is what a, a man is supposed to do. Now, all of these things in these inscriptions, in my opinion, are crisis points in Roman history, like the city's about to fall or something like that. Mm. Uh, there, are, there, are all, there are disputes between the Senate and the plebs, and no one can agree. So in the history of these people, which goes back across 500 years, uh, each has his individual point where he mastered the crisis, often to his disadvantage, say, or it could have been an irregular thing he did, of course, because the regular system had broken down. But in the crisis of the state itself, the leader was the man who mastered it. And now Augustus, by putting those little pinpointed feats of management, crisis management, we would call it now, so it is a parade of the crisis managers of Roman history. And the edict coming back to Augustus instructed the Roman people to choose future leaders, and he calls them principes, which is not a military term. Uh, it is a political term. Your future leaders in, in this republic must be chosen by that standard. Choose the man who can manage the crisis, whatever it is. So speaking of crisis management, one of the largest crises that Augustus causes in his later years is actually probably dying after decades of being the leading man of the Roman state. And in his place, we see the rise of his adopted son, Tiberius, who... I have to admit, was probably not quite as good at handling these sorts of moments of crises as Augustus himself had been. What can you tell us about this moment? The Senate passed a resolution which is recorded by at least three or more of the ancient writers who treat this matter, moved by the two consuls of AD 14. The Senate passed a resolution inviting Tiberius to do something. But you know, none of our sources say what the something was. And I believe I can demonstrate that um, neither Augustus nor Tiberius had assumed that what happened would happen. It's obvious enough to us, and it was obvious to lots of people at the time, that this is what should happen. But we don't know what the resolution actually said. I'll tell you the important evidence we have about it. Whenever Tiberius, after the death of Augustus, whenever Tiberius was there at the seat of government, senatorial debates and so on, he, Tiberius, would stand up if the consuls were present. It says that. Yes. Now, the fact that it says that is people were surprised. And for certain, we know why they were surprised, because Augustus had not been standing up when the consuls were present. And why was he not standing up? He wasn't consul, of course. He was only consul in particular years. But from 19 BC onwards, we know, he had been invited to sit on a third chair, a third curial chair, between the two consuls. 
and he himself attests this in his, in his own monument, that uh, he had consular rank, even though not a consul. And so notice the significance. The two consuls moved the motion in the Senate. My view, published but ignored by the rest of the world, is that the two consuls in their motion invited Tiberius to sit on the third curial chair, which Augustus had been sitting in yes. all those years. The fact that they comment on Tiberius standing up when the consul was present shows that Tiberius was refusing it. And he, we also know he refused it because he didn't say he was accepting it for certain. <laughs> uh, and they kept pushing. But another thing we know at the time about Tiberius was that when he wanted to give instructions, he was after all in command of all the armies. That had been arranged mm. before the death of Augustus. So he, he had ample control, but he was not a magistrate. He was a pro-magistrate, if you like, on the grand scale. So he had to do everything. And he did lots of things at Rome, and then he had the power to do it. And one might say, well, why does anything at all have to be said? And here's the crucial point. Something vital was said, and we do not know what it is. Mm. And I'm telling you my guess, un unaccepted by anybody else, um, or at least I hope they'll accept it. But We'll make uh, sure that your argument reaches a wider audience. <laughs> the other thing about Tiberius, not only did he stand up when the consuls were present, but when he gave lawful instructions um, touching political matters, he said that he was doing it by virtue of my tribunician power. Now, the tribunician power was a supplementary administrative capacity that had been granted to Augustus for a particular reason. <clears throat> uh, the particular reason was that Augustus was a provincial commander, basically, all through his life after the civil wars. From 27, in 27 BC, he was granted a 10-year provincial command. And he remained in that command until his death. And each time it came up for renewal, it was renewed, sometimes for 10 years and sometimes for five years. So his whole career simply turns on these periodic renewals. Whether he sought them or not is another matter. But if you, if you like, there's a point of failure. He should not have accepted the renewals, in my view, if he didn't want to fail. We haven't got to his objective yet. <laughs> but going back to Tiberius, um, Augustus needed the tribunician power because it, um, well, at an early stage, it, it was when he was away, he was away in his province during his first 10-year uh, stint, but they wanted him to come back and not stay away for 10 years. There was tremendous pressure on him by his own partisan not to stay in the provinces. And an odd thing happened, which no one has explained. Having taken this 10-year province, he still went on being elected to the consulship. Now, he didn't seek that for certain. Uh, so what happened, I think, when the annual elections came up and he was in his province, through, through whatever gerrymandering, there might have been, I have no idea. Uh, people simply elected him for another consulship, and it led to his own Ides of March, virtually, in the year 23. I mean, he was clearly in line for assassination. He knew that, and everybody could see it coming. And, and so he resigned in 23, midstream in his consulship. This caused a crisis, which went on to the, until the year 19, because people all his partisans and many people wanted him still active in the government and so they granted him tribunician power um, because what would happen should he suddenly come back from his province not now being a consul his imperium would cease if he crossed the city boundary and come back to Rome so they wanted him to have a, a civil status in the Senate for when he was no longer a military commander. And that's why he was given tribunician power. It was a backup power 
that would be politically functional and and had nothing to do with the armed services. And he had no, it was not a plan by him. It was just a device. And oddly enough, two or three years later, after 23, he started recording things like, in the third year of my tribulation of power. He started mm. counting it mm. as though it was a magistracy. It wasn't a magistracy. Yeah. Yeah. But he went on to the end of his life counting the, the whatever year he was in his tribulation of power. Now, at some point, long before Augustus's death, Tiberius was also given tribulation of power. And coming back then to the offer in the Senate to do something, he said, when he was giving orders in the Senate, I am, he actually said, I am doing this by virtue of my tribulation power. He said it, and that upset people. Because <laughs> that had just been renewed, hadn't it, in the previous yes, year? Yes, but the fact that it's recorded means it was a problem to people who wanted to push him into whatever Augustus had been doing. And it shows, I think, for certain that um, Augustus had not been invoking his tribulation power to do routine business, yeah. as Tiberius was now doing. So there were these two oddities about Tiberius, showing him not functioning. Uh, Tiberius was a very intelligent man. Yeah, and mm. he's, not, he's, he's de deliberately not producing a seamless continuity yeah. that the people are looking for. That's right. We know that um, Augustus, late in his, shortly before his death, speculated on who might take the leadership at Rome. He named the people, four mm. other people. He might, he might, and he's no good and so on. <laughs> A bit like choosing the next Democratic candidate in the United States. <laughs> and this candidate has my support. <laughs> and it was like that. And obviously um, people would have also been assuming that Tiberius... But I think it's absolute, absolutely certain this is a private judgment about Tiberius. That in fact, that's the last thing he wanted. He did not want that. No, he's definitely the reluctant. <laughs> he allowed himself to be bullied into it. That's his great failure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think this is a great time for me to ask, what do you think Augustus's aims and objectives were? Oh, it's crystal clear. Um, you read this book. This, this, you asked about what books. This book must be read by all students of Augustus. So this book, just for our listeners, this is the Reis Geste D.V. Augusti, the text translation and commentary by Alison E. Cooley, published no, this, by Cambridge. This is the greatest uh, edition. This is quite recent. And this is the, the greatest ever for student purposes uh, of this famous text of Augustus. Uh, and why it's good for student purposes that people without Latin or Greek. This is a text which survives in both Latin and Greek from antiquity in inscriptions. And it states Augustus's own views of what he did. And we have the text and what Cooley has done. She has printed on facing pages each opening. You get the Latin text on one side and the Greek text on the other side. And then on either side, you then get an English translation. So she's giving you two translations, a translation of the Latin text, a translation of the Greek text. Now, I believe, and I think everyone believes, Augustus did not authorise the Greek text. It's got too many errors in it, for one thing. <laughs> 50 or 60 errors are in the Greek text, largely caused by the Greek language not having an easy way of saying the things that Augustus had said, mm. the things that Augustus himself were very carefully calculated and very specific to the city of Rome. And the Greek text was produced in the backwoods province of Galatia. We don't know why it happened there, but we know it was produced there and not in Rome because of the oddities of the Greek language. It's, it's um, like having a an important document produced in Australia and not in Britain. You can mm. tell it by the things about the language, where it comes from. And not only does the Greek text have um, uh, these Maya errors, um, but also it has to deal with concepts which are embedded in Augustus's version, and, and they have to have makeshift ways of dealing with it. So it's very interesting. These double translations by Alison Cooley tells you a very interesting two-sided picture of Augustus, what he himself wanted to be remembered for, 
and the rather slightly botched version by somebody else altogether, <laughs> for certain without his authority in my mm. opinion, yeah. uh, uh, who stro- in fact complained, the, the person doing the Greek text complained, it's my word of course, it doesn't say it, <laughs> but, but complained in effect that Augustus didn't do it right, what he'd done in his version, particularly over the money. Uh, and the whole text was was about a conquest and b money, mm-hmm. and in the money uh, side of it, it's broken up in all sorts of important ways. Like there are grand statements about money, including whenever there was a shortfall in the taxes, I just supplied the shortfall. Mm. That's a totalizing money claim, but endless little money claims like. In such on such and such circumstances, everybody in such and such a category got this handout on this. So little amounts, they're pretty decent amounts, more generous than governments give now, I may say. I think it's pretty, it was meant to be a pretty impressive um, largesse policy that Augustus followed. And the um, rhetoric of it is to is to mention in particular the the the, the in-your-pocket side of it. You got this much on that occasion, this much on that occasion. So that the public would remember why and what a great largesse we got on those times, you see. But the Greek translator couldn't cope with this <laughs> and said, what's wrong with this? This is me. Uh, what's wrong with this guy? He can't say it as he ought to be saying. He sort of added it all up and said the grand total. <laughs> so the, the Greek man did that. He's produced the grand yeah. total. So the Greek has missed the significance of the of the small details of these largesse moments. Whoever was doing it in um, Galatia was a a a Greek, e not a Roman, hmm. and uh, not a maybe not a participant, probably not at all, probably not a Roman citizen, even, and therefore not a participant in this large. Was nevertheless very impressed about the grand scale of it. Yeah. And I think this is um, part of what makes, I mean, the Reis Gestae is perhaps the greatest inscription that we have in Latin, um, at least for my research purposes. Um, and we're so lucky and to have it in both Latin and Greek. It gives us this opportunity to also see just how much our Greek language and thinking yeah. doesn't quite correlate with Latin uh, thinking. Yeah. And it's the case with any two languages. There's always going to be a gap between the concepts that you need to render in your native language and yeah. the concepts you want to render in the second language, yeah. um, which bespeak to what is unique about both cultures. And it sounds like we're with the raised guesti, we're getting a real sense of just how differently the Romans perceived economic issues um, as being important, not just to the individual who's doing the giving, yeah. uh, but to the audience who's meant to engage with this inscription and to hear the tale of how fortunate they have been under this sort of benevolent leadership. That's right. Now, I want to revert to the question of failure. Since since I've produced this failure of Augustus, I want people to read this. And I can have to tell you that nowhere do I say what the failure was. But the word failure fails does occur as I mentioned at various points, so you can add it up. And I don't want to tell you now what the target was, but I think I have to for your podcast. Or something. <laughs> but I would prefer people to come to this book not knowing what I think fair his enough. aim in life was. I think that's fair. We'll but, leave a sense of mystery. <laughs> on the other hand, I do want you to know, uh, since to guide what we're saying, you can easily calculate, just like the Greek translator did calculations. We all do calculations on what it adds up to in our view. And I personally think that the whole drive of the Reskistai is quantitative. There's a huge amount of um, adding things up going on all the time and, and comparing records, saying to have been the first to do something and things like that. Now, the, uh, this is a quantitative assessment of, given what I've said about the forum, of Augustus's own view of his crisis management. There was indeed a, ma- a monstrous crisis, which he inherited and partly caused. So, 
he he has to uh, show himself to have a managed the crisis. He's not denying that he's the leader, by the way. Uh, he's proud of that. And being the leader, the princeps, is not something he invented. In Cicero's time, Cicero thought of himself as the princeps of Rome. And people chopped and changed it, or you could use the word princeps in the plural. It could be leaders of Rome. They don't, there doesn't have to be just one. But for once in our uh, uh, tricky trade, the Latin is exactly the same in meaning as the English. The word princeps meaning leader exactly is with us. The word leader is not the name of anything constitutional. And yet our whole political system is shot through every, every day, all the time, with the concept of leadership. But what is leadership? People criticize it, say, won't you take the lead? They say, we want leadership. <laughs> but you've elected them, and so on, so on. So it's nothing to do with the actual government or the law, or anything like that. It's how they inha inhabit the it, role. It, it, it is whatever we mean by leadership. The Romans meant exactly that by princeps too. Literally, the word princeps means coming first. But in terms of its um, sort of meaning, it's just like a, it is not the name of any appointment, except only if you were first elected by the censors when making up the Senate, the person who was first put in was the leader of the Senate, and he was called the princeps of the Senate. Augustus, of course, was the princeps of the Senate, but in this far grander way, he is in general the princeps of Rome, just as they had been in previous generations. People like Sulla and so on, and the Scipios, they were principes of Rome. This is how they talked, and you don't have to have just one. A family can, or a family tradition can hold a kind of principate. The term principate, which we use and which the Romans used, is not the name of any appointment or anything lawful. It is like being a leader. Um, we can say, you know, um, our politicians were true leaders of this country, not just that they were, became prime minister and so on and so on, but that they embraced things and their views were counted and in particular dis politicians no longer in office all hunger to express their instinct for leadership they always want their views still to be known and so on and so on yeah, yeah. and that they are in fact evincing their sense of being leaders and the public play along with that the media in particular are always eager to hear what a former prime minister thinks about anything <laughs> so th this is the same mystery it is a mysterious thing leadership since it's not official, and, and people be, can be elected and still be bad leaders, very common, mm. and so on. So, so thinking about this, this concept of leadership in terms of how it relates to Augustus, I'm wondering if you can step me through what happens with Augustus in 27. Well, in 27, it was uh, the first sitting of the Senate for the year. It was midwinter, snow on the ground, and so on. So not a climactic point. It's just a routine point. And we know from Augustus' own statements that he had um, cancelled various emergency arrangements under the previous triumvirate uh, and the irregular periods after the battle with Antony and Cleopatra and so on. A lot of irregular things, emergency measures, were cancelled in the year 28. And According to the external sources, at the beginning of the year 27, he, he said to the Senate uh, that he was resigning his potestas. Potestas means power, but in a legal sense. This is not leadership. He was not resigning his leadership. Mm. He was resigning his potestas. But we don't know what potestas he had. It's three years since he had formal quasi magisterial things in the triumvirate. The triumvirate was a kind of collective dictatorship, but it, it had boundaries and it had, it had a terminal point and so on. Some people say that, um, in fact, he just went on using it. And during the incipient civil war between Octavius and uh, well, Octavian, as we call him, and um, Antonius, um, that 
the term of the dictatorship ended in 33, and they accused each other of going on with it, which was a legitimate thing to do, and particularly for Antonius. If you're not at Rome, you can't rectify your position. And a magistrate, for example, leading Roman armies on a distant frontier and reaching the end of his term. He can't just stop fighting. He's got to go on. <laughs> He's expected to go on. Yeah, so, and to come uh, back and then um, resign it. That's right. Mm. Valid. It was valid for the uh, both Antonius and um, young Caesar, which is the right way to talk about him, young Caesar. He liked that. Just Caesar I bet he did. Without the young, actually. <laughs> uh, they both accused each other of trying to cling on. So it may be that in the end, de facto, that's what young Caesar was doing at the beginning of 28. Or Isn't that a bit of a problem for him, though, because he is in Rome? I Well, he was consul then. Oh, OK. So he's back into the consulship. Okay. This book solves all these problems. <laughs> oh, I love this diagram. This is the diagram which I invented. Every student of Augustus needs that on his table. All yeah, the time. I actually think I got a copy of that when I came to a lecture as a high school student. <laughs> this, is this is basically detailing all of the positions that Octavian holds over the course of his career um, through his uh, time as Octavianus, uh, the adopted son, and as Augustus later on, and sort of laying it out so that you can look vertically and horizontally and right. pick any year you like and see what actually he was he was doing in terms of the positions that he held. And it does get quite complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated, and particularly for years where multiple things are applicable. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this is, this is a I think great the, I think the breakdown. 20s are some of the most complicated years. Um, but as to what happened there at the beginning of 27 was, um, he, he says in the RG that he... Um, he transferred the res publica from my potestas, meaning he was alleging that what I'd been doing was in fact lawful. That's what potestas means. And we can't define why it was lawful, but it can't be wrong. Oh, incidentally, an important thing about this book, this is vital, this is a little side. This, the, the res gestae must contain no lies. I may say the, um, when I first taught students this in the University of Sydney in the year 1957 or 8, when for the first time there were tutorial classes at the University of Sydney because of the Sputnik scare. The government put new money in. There's more teaching at the university so that we can have better Sputniks than the Russians. Oh, we need one of those moments and, now. And so we had... Um, we all suddenly had not just lectures. We used to just give lectures. I used to mm -hmm. lecture at Sydney to 500 students in wow. the theatre. And they would boo me. And so I was very active, <laughs> very active senior. And, and we had these little tutorial groups. And in the very first one, whether it was 57 or 58, I'm not 58 perhaps, I'm not absolutely sure, an impudent student from Canterbury Boys High School was in the class. And instead of listening to my, we didn't know what tutorials were. I, of course, went on and on and on. <laughs> but his name was Ron Ridley. He interrupted me all the time. said, it can't be right, it can't be right. So he fought me all the way <laughs> as an 18-year-old. I was deeply impressed by this. Worse, he has sub subsequently stated in print <laughs> that he and his cronies in that tutorial group would sit up all night searching in the source material to prove I was wrong. <laughs> now that's what the tutorials were like. That's a, that's a mark of a future historian right there. That man is now the Emeritus Professor of History in Melbourne. He's still there. <laughs> and he wrote a great book on the race gestae, uh, saying in Latin on the front, dedicating it to me, whom he contradicted, <laughs> and who incidentally disagrees with me 100% on my doctrine. There cannot be lies in this book. Ron Ridley's book proves in his view that it's lies all the way. So you need to read his book. And he says in his dedication to me in the front that this is for me, he says. Uh, and then has a little phrase in Latin, which means I hope you won't have a blue fit. <laughs> well, I'm having it, of course. And, and of course, I love Ron mightily and admire him greatly. And he, for some reason, uh, has never got over being taught by me. He, he says that himself. And 
I, I make, make the point, there's a fundamental difference between him and me. He thinks this is designed to misconstrue things. I am taking the exact opposite thing. It's absolutely essential that there be nothing actually wrong in it. Otherwise, his, we still haven't decided what his purpose was. Well, that's okay. But, but otherwise, if there is something, if he just fakes the figures in some way, as soon as he's dead, everybody will tore him to, tear him to shreds. I, yeah, I feel like there's something we should point out for our listeners who might not be as familiar with Augustus here. The res gestae was not something that Augustus was writing for himself. This was something that was designed to be uh, to be published and seen by the people. Well, specifically outside his tomb. It's yes. Specifically for going outside his tomb, which would be a, a place you would make pilgrimages to. Yeah, and we're really quite Absolutely. lucky at the moment because they're engaging in a restoration of the mausoleum now. Yeah. And if you want to see this inscription, if you happen to be lucky enough to be in Rome, there is a copy of it just across the road from the mausoleum yeah. on the outside wall of the Arapacus Museum. So you can go and have a look at just the extent of it because the thing is a very long inscription. Yes. And in order for it to be on display in public in this way, we have to assume that people are going to talk about it the people who are literate are going to translate it for the people who are not able to read it because yeah. um, there is something in here for everybody. But um, let me tell you this. My, uh, my conviction is not only are there no fibs in this, but there are also no surprises. In other words, everything that has gone into this, the people knew all about long before. And they've heard it and heard it and heard it in 101 ways. And... There, notice carefully, it is, it is all data, and it, it does not contain policies, nor interpretations. It contains heaps of laudatory things, provided other people have said them, and so on. But we still haven't said what his aim was. Uh, um, the purpose of, of the text, in, in my opinion, was quantitative. It simply wanted to, to, to break all the records, and... And he's very careful about it. He's not fabricating it. And th there are cases that you can see that he's not, not mentioning where he didn't break the records <laughs> and so on. But where he broke the records, this is built in here. And so he, he's saying a simple thing, that he is the, um, the top scorer in this 500-year. Yeah, and so then it's a matter of thinking about, like, how did he quite get there because I mean he seems to be a bit of a frail specimen of a human um, <laughs> he falls ill quite a lot he finds ways to not go onto the battlefield yes um, I agree with all that <laughs> he, and of course it's true he, however he had the support of powerful backers and people like Agrippa and Lucina as they're no fools without calling him a mere coward for example <laughs> I agree his ambiguous record but then he he always felt sick if there was a battle on so I'm well. I don't blame him for that. It's not a, <laughs> Makes not, him more human, doesn't it? It's not an admirable thing, nevertheless, <laughs> from a Roman point of view. And mm. he doesn't he doesn't have a personally glorious record as a human being. So and he is not claiming that. Two centuries before people did claim that kind of thing. We have inscriptions before people boasted I am the best orator. I have more children than you. <laughs> Augustus has no boasts of his personal capacity in this book. It's I actually feel nice. like that's always been one of his strengths in a way that he seems, I, I always get a sense that Augustus knows his own strengths yeah. and he knows where he needs to bring someone else in. Okay, so his purpose is clear. Mm. He simply wants to be the ultimate record breaker. But the problem is... He simply allowed it to go on and on. He should have died. He was going to die in 23. <laughs> yeah, he was going to die in 23. Everybody he somehow so lives sure. a very long life. <laughs> it was mismanaged in a bad way. <laughs> because, and he shouldn't have just gone on taking the renewals. And I'm sure myself that he could see the folly of it. But, of course, people pressed him to do it all the time. He was always being pressed to do it. And, in fact... The thing that was changed, my, my main hypothesis, nothing was changed. But what was changing was the idolization of the leader by, mm. by the Roman public. And worse, the capitulation morally of the other nobility. There are after all scores of other great noble houses, all of whom would be wanting 
aspiring to coolies like this, mm. this type, but there was a subtle shift which is documented. I can't give you the documentation just now, it's too detailed, but a, a subtle shift when people competed not to outshine Augustus, but to call to him more obviously than their rivals. That is, servility became one of the competitive arenas. And I think this mm. is the thing that really disgusts Tacitus. Yes. Mm. Well, it, this is the real change. There isn't a constitutional change. This is the main point I'm making. Rome did not technically change. But because of the immense crises they've been through, 20 years of civil war and the terrible costs and all that, and then this extraordinary prolongation of a rather elderly, feeble, increasingly unhealthy man, <laughs> uh, just locked things down. And by long before his death, um, as Tester says, there were not many people around who could remember what it once was like before the Civil Wars. Mm. So he makes it clear that I'm right about this in the second last clause of the Res Gestae, where he says that he, as I mentioned, that he transferred the Res Publica from his potestas to the discretion of the Senate and people of Rome. That is, the Roman state remained as it always was. Nothing has changed. Just that we've had a high hiatus over the civil wars. And then he says, from that time, I had no more potestas than those who were my colleagues in the magistracies. So when I was a consul, the other consul had the same potestas as I had, and vice versa. But I was ahead of them in auctoritas. So if you say, well, how on earth did he become a leader on this scale? His answer is crystal clear. It's because of auctoritas. And what is auctoritas? Well, rather like the word leadership, it's exactly the same as our word authority. Now, our word authority is double-sided, like, like auctoritas is. You can have the formal authority if you're a magistrate to do this and that, but if you're not a magistrate, I'm speaking of now, if you're not in Parliament, you can still have authority. And the authority exists in the community, and the authority means people listen to you and admire you, or whatever it is, and, and you count somehow or other. Now, it's a mysterious thing, but it's no more mysterious uh, at Rome than it is for us. So authority and leadership are two perfectly normal English words, equally ambiguous in English and in Latin. So although we have to strive to be true to the Latin language, for once we've got tremendous backup in our English language. Our English words, particularly the word authority, our word authority is simply auctoritas, spelt in an English way. <laughs> and we also get a sense that Augustus himself really valued this concept because it seems to, like, the, the root word that auctoritas comes from yeah. is also built into Augustus, which is this honorific title he's granted in 27. So then what was his failure? If, if all he wanted to do was to break all the records, he's done that. But he's still failed because the others have capitulated. They won't play. They've given up the competition. That's what went wrong. It's not a constitutional change. We know this, by the way, because when Tiberius wrote his will, when Caesar wrote his will and gave such and such a proportion to <clears throat> young Octavius, Octavius reduced the proportion that went to Tiberius. And when Tiberius's will was read, he split it between two 50-50. Now, that's Tiberius's final verdict on what should happen, not unitary leadership. It's interesting, actually, that you say that the, the aspect of competition that's missing, because I feel like that's one of the things that really haunted Tiberius as well, that there wasn't this sense of competition anymore. And he didn't actually want to compete. He was a relatively elderly man by the time this Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's, he'd had a very active life. Absolutely. On the yeah. front, he was far more active than Augustus had. He had his legs, of course. True military man. <laughs> and uh, and he, he simply had had enough. And the normal thing in Roman life, if you were lived on to that age, would be to take no more appointments but still sit in the Senate mm. and exercise your auctoritas that way. Tiberius would no doubt have been happy enough to do that and make odd speeches and so on. He was a literate man. 
and very experienced after all, a mm. great fountain of know-how. But the fact that he retreated in a few years and went to live on Capri is, is his simply repudiation of what was happening and the way the state is. And, and he said, whenever people raised critical cases, he would say, let the laws apply. He washed his hands of any attempt to institutionalise the so-called principate. He is rejecting the principate. It's actually funny you should mention that word because I've been dying to ask you while we've been having this conversation. Uh, for our listeners, could you clarify the term that you think is most accurate for Augustus's tenure? Because some people call him, you know, the first emperor. Some people say we should call it the Principate. What do you think is the most... Neither of those. But both of those institutionalised mm. the very thing that he was trying not to institutionalise. He wanted it left open for the great men of the future to compete, manage their crisis and become leaders that way. And he says in the same edict where he said this, he said, I want to be judged that way. Judge me by how I manage the crisis and judge that to others. So emphatically, his view of Roman history is a thousand years, of course, they all wanted a thousand years, unchanging. For certain, that was his view. And his failure was he destroyed uh, his own aim by staying too long in the centre of power and paralysing the will to compete mm. in his plans. That's what so I'm wondering, like, because um, I think it might be a good place to sort of wrap I, up this I'm conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you have any uh, last words or thoughts on Augustus that you'd like to leave with our listeners. You said when briefing me on this that, uh, or an article, I would strongly urge anybody, not only to read this book on failure, but the chapter three in it is is a short articles saying everything. Chapter 3 is called The Private Sources of Force in Roman Politics. And it covers everything from the era of the Scipios down to Augustus. That's 200 years of Roman history in this small chapter. And by calling, calling it private force, I was inspired by this book a generation ago, which um, sharpened my understanding. I've always thought what I've been telling you today, but the phrase, the private sources of force, graphically sharpened in my mind. This, this is what went wrong with Rome. Why did Rome drift into, into autocracy in the way I've described? Um, it was because the Roman law itself did not provide adequate protection for people. If you suffered a murder in your family, for example, there was no crown prosecutor, no police. You had to find revenge for yourself by private means. There were courts, of course, but you had to get the murderer to the court physically by <laughs> private force. Quite a challenge. And, and this was fundamental, a fundamental difference between our culture. Uh, we cannot execute the law ourselves. In fact, there's a very great risk, as you know, if, if, you, if, you, if you see there's a terrible accident or a crime being committed, you have to be careful or you'll find yourself brought to law. Oh, there's definitely in, that strong, yeah, anti-vigilante message. The culprit may break his leg and you'll be responsible. Mm. So, and yet, somehow in our culture, we still think people should do something when they see something terrible happening. We all feel this, and morally it's right. But the law doesn't say it's right. The law, the law protects often the assailant. But the crucial thing is it was not like this in Rome. And the most famous statement by Julius Caesar was this. I, Julius Caesar, after such great achievements, would have been condemned if I had not sought the help of my army. Now, that's after the Battle of Faustus. That's justifying crossing the Rubicon. He crossed the Rubicon because he would have been condemned. The courts would have been used against him. It's easy to see why. He didn't have enough money. And, uh, and so he appealed, like any Roman citizen could appeal, privately to the help, the physical help, against people who are going to persecute me and condemn me. He means 
Why, why does it matter? Because he wouldn't have enough money to pay the jurors and so on. He couldn't win the court case that was pending. And, and he'd done terrible things anyway. He deserved to be found guilty. <laughs> but he, he touched a vital point of all Roman history. In the crisis, you seek help by force. And that is valid. And that explains the whole of this period we're talking about. It is the triumph of the private use of force. And the book that Professor Judge is recommending is uh, Violence in Republican Rome by A.W. Lintot. We'll have a link to that in our show notes for today. Well, I think that that is a good time to wrap up because Professor Judge has been extremely generous with his time. Thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us about Augustus today and your latest publication. Uh, I've really enjoyed perusing it over the past week. And we also want to say thank you to Macquarie University for arranging for us to do this recording today. Yeah, this is a beautiful recording space. Thank you so much for speaking with us, Edwin. It's been a real pleasure. All the best for your project. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to The Partial Historians. This has been a really special episode for us. Both Dr. Rad and I uh, are alumni of Macquarie University and having the chance to sit down with Edwin Judge, who is such a luminary in the field and within the university, was truly an honor. We'd also like to send a huge shout out to our patrons, Adri, Dana, Joel, Roman, Savannah, Sharon, Sean, and Zara. Thank you so much for your support. If you're interested in following The Partial Historians, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon.